We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay, then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome into the Garden. And this episode, we're bringing back one of our favorite guests. He's been on Garden of Doom and Garden Views. It's Mike Hilliard from the Red Line Podcast, which uh, within the Magnetosphere is the premier geopolitical podcast that there is. I'm sure you can find it where all podcasts can be found, but I find it on Apple. And uh, as he likes to say about his guests, we're thrilled to have you on the program. Uh, I, I'm, I am. I'm truly thrilled and I'm joyous. I have uh, some guests that I just uh, I just don't understand how I got them and how I kept them. It's, it's, it's amazing. Anyway, that's not what the audience wants to hear about. So what are we going to talk about today? So, you know, this, this show and, and its sister show have looked into the laws of space and we've looked into geopolitics and we've looked into all sorts of wild stuff. And Mike is an expert on geopolitical issues. Obviously, a lot of historical training comes with that. And with that comes some ability for foresight. And he has connections knowing what's going on in the world now that the rest of us might not. Certainly, I don't. And what we're going to talk about today is warfare in space. So I guess we'll touch on what are the laws, what are the treaties, what are the norms, because they're not necessarily the same thing. What have been the threats? What are the threats and what might the threats be in the near term or as we can pull from uh, sci-fi movies, the event horizon. Uh, so Mike, please tell us about Battlefield Earth or Battlefield Low Earth Orbit, Star Wars. Um, I think I will stop with my metaphors of movies for the moment. But yeah, what, what, what's going on? What, what is the state? Yeah. Um, okay, I'll, I won't stop then. I'll just try and do better with them. Yes, it's an incredibly fascinating area of the world, of the world, I guess. 
because a there's just it's so unprecedented. You know, there's a almost everyone's kind of working on the fact that we almost use the laws of the sea to determine how things happen out there. But it's also so you know uh, out of the usual and completely different set of cards uh, that we don't really know what's what, how what's going to happen, how it plays out, what happens if X and Y, and how that ricochets out. You know, it's one of these questions of you know using an anti-satellite missile to blow. Well, the missile that causes a tremendous breach and take another satellite's what's the legal ramifications there. But even attacking another satellite is really dicey on who owns what. And, you know, it's private, it's not like Musk who wants stuff up there, or is it in the United States that technically has jurisdiction up there? It is a really, really complicated legal world, but also militarily increasingly uh, complicated. You know, you've got satellites that are designed for ground attack, you've got satellites that are designed to attack other satellites, you've got satellites that are just purely communications. Others who are starting to design to encrypt stuff, you know, otherwise uh, satellites that are just designed for surveillance. You know, we feel comfortable that we can shoot down, you know, let's say, U two over, over Russia. We did that during the Cold War. But are you allowed to shoot down a satellite if that satellite's watching your, you know, your rocket bases or whatever it is? It gets dicey. You know, we shoot down balloons, but if the balloon was a little bit higher into space, then technically we're not allowed to shoot it down anymore. Right. You know, it's it's, it's a really really you know, the line hasn't been drawn and I think it's just feeling it out now because everything is unfolding so yeah, my understanding is that there, you know there's basically the, the law of outer space says that all nations have agreed to use space for peaceful purposes or non-military purposes I, I think that the language is it's more or less identical to the Antarctica, uh, Antarctica Treaty um, but I'm not sure that everybody signed onto it, and then there have been a bunch of other treaties since then that not everyone signed onto, and in fact, some countries pulled out of. I mean, recently Saudi Arabia pulled out of a, a treaty on not mining celestial bodies, which is a little bit strange because Saudi Arabia doesn't have a space program. However, if anybody knows how to extract things out of the ground, they certainly have the equipment and maybe they're seeing in the future that the fossil fuels are going the way of the dodo and they need to repurpose, I don't know, thousands of square miles of piping and drills and cranes and whatever other equipment they have that, well, they got to put it somewhere. Um, I don't know. But, and there's, there's been other things too. There was something recently that, uh, uh, some there was supposed to be some agreement on the moon, and I remember Professor Hanlon, who was on the show, uh, expressed disappointment that they they couldn't come to an agreement. I commented in her LinkedIn post. I goes, "You remember? I was skeptical." And yeah, and she goes, yeah, "I remember." Um, so, unfortunately, skepticism seems to be at least prudential, if not providential. Um, so, what do you think the the biggest threats are, and and, who, you know, who are the players? I imagine they're obvious who the players are, but, but maybe not so much. So your big ones are obviously the United States. They're absolutely huge in the space. Um, they've, you know, been the big player, and they are far above the other sort of the second and third place for most things. Obviously, rockets, the Russians do really, really well. Uh, Russians have also done, just opened up their new Vostoshny, uh, uh, you know, Cosmodrome, out in New Vladivostok. That's going to be quite big for them. Uh, the Chinese are, are increasingly getting bigger and bigger into this. But then there's kind of this mid-tier of, of France and even guys like India and the, you know, uh, and the, um, and the uh, UAE, so not an Arab Emirates, we're getting into space as well. And that's that gets really dicey again because right now, whilst, for instance, the, the US, Russia, and China be pretty you know, reasonable about what they shoot don't up there, India just tested an anti-satellite missile and blew up and caused a whole bunch of debris, which is really problematic um, because... Because everything's flying around so quickly mm -hmm. up there, let's say you explode a, a satellite into ten thousand pieces. You know these pieces are let's say only you know, the size of a, a thumbnail, but they're flying around at such a speed that well, they hit something and just rip it apart. And again, nothing up there is made of tank shells; it's all white, you know, light uh, alloys and equipment. And if that hits it, and that second thing it's into another ten thousand pieces, you can form a problem where effectively everything starts snowballing, and you end up putting so much trash and danger out there. It gets really difficult to get out to war because the last thing you want is you put a satellite up there to, you know, get a new you know, cable news channel, and then all of a sudden that gets that gets hit by just debris that's running around. And again, the only thing stopping everyone testing some anti-satellite missiles because they're not crazy hard technology is just kind of a gentleman's agreement in geopolitics at the moment. And that's a really what thing you're starting to see 
you know, these middle powers particularly getting this technology and do they want to use it? Will they use it? And how will they respond to that? Right. And I know this world is full of conspiracy theories and now we're going to go into one that's outside of this world. But if you, uh, you know, the Russians did the same thing a few years ago. They, they blew up one of their own satellites and it caused a whole lot of havoc. And so up until that moment, if any sort of space debris hit another another satellite or another vessel, it's a pretty good chance it came from that Russian satellite. But if you want to say that the Indians and the Russians were in cahoots, well, now the Indians did the same thing. And now if the debris comes, I mean, imagine prosecuting that legal case. You couldn't prove who did it. Uh, you couldn't prove which state was liable, even if they were, were willing to subject themselves to the laws of Earth. I mean, you know, and my understanding is that most satellites, if not all, are in uh, 22,000 feet. That's low Earth orbit. There's probably some other things that are in orbit. I, I think like the International Space Station might be at 24,000, I'm sorry, 24,000 miles, not feet. Um, and, you know, who knows if there's anything else out there. I'm sure there's people that are yelling at me right now, the Black Knight satellite, the Black Knight satellite, the base is on the moon. We'll, we'll talk about that on other shows with other with other folks, I'm sure. Um, but we'll just stick to what we know and can verify here. Uh, but I think it's 22,000 miles and 24,000 miles is, you know, anything else is a vessel that's, you know, going out, you know, Voyager, entering the Oort cloud or whatever. There's a high Earth orbit as well. So that's where you do, you know, uh, geostationary orbit, but then geosynchronous. And yeah, it's very early in the morning over here. So when it comes to, for instance, uh, surveillance, there are two types of surveillance satellites. So one that is effectively going around the Earth all the time. Mm-hmm. Now that will, you know, be looking at it one minute and looking at Norway the next. But there's also a different one once you put it in a much higher orbit, which will follow the same part of Earth as that as the Earth rotates. So effectively, you would park it over a Chinese naval base, and you would just have it watch that Chinese naval base 24 hours a day. Uh, that's you know, way above a completely different orbit, used for completely different purposes. But yeah, there's there's different levels of orbit where you can put it in there and what they actually can achieve by being in that orbit. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting in that question as well, like how many satellites do you want to use for just watching a particular naval base and what do you want the flexibility of, you know, you can see lots of things go right around the earth uh, because some bits are, you want to be watching that all the time. Others are, hey, we want something that I could use to look at Tajikistan and then tomorrow I could probably use to look at Saudi Arabia. You know, mm. it's, a, it's a, you know, again, a question of resources and availability. And angles. I mean, it's it's not even like it's yeah. not even like you have to drive somewhere. It's just you can a uh, half a degree. You can see another, you know, whatever the equivalent is in math, seven hundred miles, a thousand miles. I don't know, um, but yeah, they, 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 I mean, a there's no there's no agreement as to where the atmosphere ends. Um, and as you were pointing out earlier, the, the little pieces of debris they move very fast. I mean, you know, so I think everyone knows that the Earth rotates at a rate of. A thousand miles an hour, twenty-four hours. You know, twenty-four thousand miles is roughly the circumference of the Earth. It's not exactly that leap year. There you go. Um, but the Earth moves in its orbit. I believe it's like sixty thousand miles an hour is how fast we're we're hurtling in our elliptical. Um, and these objects are in orbit with us, so they're also moving at sixty thousand miles or so a dime moving at 60,000 miles an hour is, you know, might, might as well be a uranium bullet, you know, launched at, at something. So yeah, the destructive power is incomprehensible, uh, you know, compared to the size. Um, and I'm not sure anyone really gave this much thought way back when maybe they did, but I, there was a show, it might still exist. I think it's on Netflix called space force. It's not particularly good, but no, yeah, yeah. But they had a they had an episode where a, a Chinese ship went up to a U.S. satellite and it deployed basically a giant scissor and cut the satellite in half or something like that. And it was funny uh, until I read some articles that that's actually some of the real technology that, it, that in in some cases like a French company was thinking about how to clean up space debris and their idea was to have a ship with a giant net. Well, that giant net could pick up space debris. It could also pick up Satellites. It could take your satellite out of orbit, maybe more than one, uh, you know, or maybe several Starlink satellites. Uh, you know, so these are all multi-use things. It's 
You know, and non-military, well, does that mean all weapons? Well, police aren't military. We have a Coast Guard. So wouldn't there be a Space Guard too? And wouldn't they have some sort of weapon? Is that military or is that to enforce the peace? I guess it depends who you're asking. Very much so. Again, you know, what is military and what is not is a big question. You know, because I would, you know, if a satellite is just sitting there watching a Chinese naval base, is that a military satellite? Yeah. I would argue, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would argue that, you know, uh, the Ukrainian soldiers right now are using Starlink and satellites to effectively do the communications. That's powering their comm systems. Okay, is that a military use? Because if you get rid of that, then you're losing a whole bunch of civilian infrastructure as well. And that gets really dicey. You know, a lot of uh, missiles in particular will use GPS to help them you know, get into position. Is that a military asset then? Again, this is where the line gets really, really weird and, and when it comes to the sort of the scissors thing in Space Force, it's not quite there, but it's, you know, not far off. Effectively, if you're trying to get rid of your enemy satellite, there is a lot of, you know, satellite-to-satellite capabilities. There's effectively two ways you can do it. One is just literally extending a robot arm and throwing the other satellite back towards Earth. And that sounds crazy, but you don't need to nudge it very much. And right. once it gets, you know, heads back towards Earth, it's just going to burn up. Now, obviously, it's always falling technically when it's in orbit, it's a thing. But when you're actually, if you knock it off, then you can burn it up. I mean, the other option is lasers. People think of Star Wars as usual. But it's not that. Effectively, all you need to do is scramble its receiver or just melt just the chip or just a few bits and pieces, and the entire satellite becomes useless. Because no one's going to go up there and fix it. Because right. it's just far too expensive. So satellite-to-satellite warfare is, is the most, you know, it feels so underwhelming that the biggest weapons are. You know, a little robot arm that can throw you out or just a little laser that you can aim and, and just knock out the actual receiver. Uh, because, again, it's just, you know, imagine just cutting the cord to someone's phone and then, okay, now it's useless. Well, sure, um, but we're in the infancy of space travel period. I mean, if, if this was, you know, whatever, 5,000 years ago and the, the advancing Navy had one sail, if you had something that could put a hole in the sail big enough, they no longer get enough wind. You know, if, if they're reed canoes and, and you can put a hole in the, can, the canoes and in the bottom, they're sinking. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's pretty easy. And the, the reason that they pick these, these uh, distances for, for geosynchronous orbit um, is because if they're significantly below that, I mean, I'm sure there's other reasons, but I, I don't know whether it's 21,000 miles or it's 17,000 miles, but at some point lower, you're not just tied to the Earth's gravity. The Earth's gra- gravity is pulling you in and, and you burn up in the atmosphere. I, you know, again, I don't know where that, where that is and how far 22,000 miles is away from that. Um, but as you said, if you just push down and it moves at its own pace, down there, it's it, you know, it it's only has one way to go. Yeah, and obviously you can try and just fling it out into, into the, the nothingness of space as well. There's lots of things yeah. you can do, um, but space is a really odd difference to fighting, let's say, on on the on the sea, fighting you know, the trenches of Ukraine. You know, effectively, because the economics of getting things up there is so expensive, for every pound you put up up there is, is way more expensive. It's what makes mining up there almost you know a, a non-starter. At the so you have these satellites that you want to, you can, you can make them so they can never be touched by another satellite. They're, you know, they're nice and laser proof and everyone thinks they're all great, but now you've just tripled the actual uh, equipment you have to put on it. Right. That's really expensive. And now you just sell 20 satellites for the cost of what, you know, making one big fortified one that had to work in a network anyway. So it didn't matter because they're going to throw the cheap ones down and break your network regardless. So this is a really, really interesting sort of kettle of fish of, Economics, how you're putting lots and lots of cheap satellites out there uh, versus you know state of the art ones, and what you expect to lose in, in opening combat. A bit, a bit rambling because it's been early in the morning here, but now the sort of question becomes: What does a day one conflict like? You know, if let's say Russia and the United States would, God forbid, go to war with each other, does Russia open this by just blowing up a bunch of U.S. satellites and just causing absolute debris in that that orbit, which? Yeah, holy mother of God, that takes out banking systems, that takes out communication systems, that directs GPS, that just throws a bunch of everything off and becomes absolute chaos for a while. And even if the conflict didn't last two days and we end up having a peaceful resolution and people say, oh, my bad, sorry, I misread a text message or something, (laughs) 
completely wrecks space for a long time. This is a real conundrum that we are worried that if we don't have the capabilities to defend satellites, we don't have capabilities up there to fight back if, if someone's going to attack us on day one, we may lose it all, and that really helps your opponent. But at the same time, the more we militarize it, the more the other side's going to militarize it, and we are, A, taking money away from civilian assets in space, which we probably should be spending more money on, uh, and B, increasing the war not only wrecks things down here on Earth, but also wrecks space for a much longer time. Uh, and the sort of the, the net that the French are talking about, or particularly the Japanese, who are looking at laser weapons to try and just burn, you know, just push little bits of debris back into, uh, back into, you know, effectively burn up in the atmosphere. Great, but A, requires an absolute load of energy to get through the atmosphere, which is a pain, uh, because you need, you're still shooting it from effectively on the ground. And B, you know, we don't know where every little bit of debris is. We can track most of them, but there are going to be little flecks. Right. Like we miss one and accidentally hit something and we start the whole chain again. And it's one of those, you know, we could spend two years cleaning this up and miss one, you know, the tiny little top of a nail head and we start the whole process again. And that's, you know, economically a problem again. So there's a whole bunch of different problems with space that we are not ready for, whether it be day one or trash or how much we militarize particularly theater. But they're always making new things that are lighter and stronger. So there's new metals that are being made that are lighter and stronger. There's new plastics that are more durable. I'm sure they're doing the same thing with glass. And But I don't know what materials they use on spacecraft, but I'm sure they're working on those. And whatever terrestrial uses they have, somebody's going to be smart enough to say, hey, we can basically make a Swiss Army knife satellite. You know, uh, you know. I, I, I saw one of the real proposals was, Basically, they would extend a crab claw, like a, like a lobster pincer or whatever. But it, it probably doesn't need to be all that big. It just needs to cut one of those thin lines or impact uh, the solar dishes, the, the power of the thing. I mean, if you if if the satellite doesn't have any more power, you know, the, and I believe all the power is generated by solar in a lot of those things, then it's just a useless hunk of junk anyway, even if, if it's not causing any damage. So I don't know... If it's practical to stop it, you know, even if there was a space guard instead of a coast guard, first of all, where's their jurisdiction? You know, can they go all over around the earth? Is it going to be an international force? I mean, you know, it's probably going to be financed by us, meaning the U.S. You're in Australia, so you're not necessarily part of us. Um, not technically, but yeah. <laughs> not te- yeah. And that's important. Plausible deniability. Um you know, but is everyone going to be so happy with us roaming around up there? No, 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 they absolutely are not. Um, and I've spoken to a lot of smart people who are planning on mining and space tourism and space commerce. I've also spoken to a lot of smart people who say, we're nowhere near that. We're not, everybody who's talking to you about mining things in space, they, they don't know what they're talking about. My belief. Where I would say Yes, you, you, I heard. I heard. I in fact heard you say. My response to that is always: as soon as they find something that's valuable enough and rare enough, that they'll find a way to make the dollars work, and someone will go up there. Absolutely, of course, and that's the thing. It, it, economically, like we can do it, but economically, it just doesn't make sense. Let's say you know we've been talking about these sort of. They find this big comment. They say, "Look, it's got fifty trillion dollars worth of helium," and that they do that by they take the, the amount of helium or whatever it is inside that. that asteroid and they just times it by the amount of uh, that mineral we have on earth right. or the price per kilo is back here but the trouble is that a we need to get a rocket up there right. which is always very expensive get out there which is going to be a pain because obviously you know it's flying at a very very fast speed and we have to time it exactly but even if we manage to do that and we get on there we actually need to fill it up which requires either a drill and everything getting up there fill it back up there and then take off again Right. And then manage to get back to Earth, which is another pain, and then get back down. And even if we want to build, let's say, something that survives orbit and survives crashing to the Earth, because the last thing you want is that it just smacks into the ground and explodes, and all the helium you have just disappears. You know, you need to build something that survives re-entry. So let's say, you know, is all that worth, let's say, a ship, like a, a let's say, a, you know, saying the size of the Soviet base shuttle worth of helium? No. Like that right. just economically doesn't make sense. You could fill it with all the helium you possibly could, but something that size doesn't make up for the cost of, you know, uh, you know 
effectively going out there mining and bringing it back. You know, you can do it artificially in labs, or you can try and. You know, there are a lot of these elements that are. Yeah, we have them on Earth, but they're just in such tiny concentrations that you end up having to pay a lot of money to get you know a, a, the end product of a kilo worth. So we're still a little bit off because the economics just don't make sense. But let's say if we have reusable rockets that are, are far better and far cheaper than what we currently have, and we can store a lot easier, and we can effectively have much larger uh, amounts of sort of capacity to bring back to Earth. And yeah, the numbers change, and maybe it is viable. But right now. You're looking at many billions of dollars to get, you know, a you know, couple of trucks worth of helium, which is just not worth it. Right. Um, great concept. It's in the future. I just, it's not economically viable at the moment, which is so many sci-fi things at the moment. We're doing a piece on uh, this week the uh, economic viability of, of nuclear power, and it's like, yep, it completely works. We can do all of these crazy things. Great science experiments. You know, fusion, all these great stuff. And we, can, we can cheer about it. And then you ask the question, is it economically viable? It's going to be cheaper per megawatt hour than gas. And they go, well, no, you know, it's not. Okay, is it cheaper than renewables? Well, absolutely not. Renewables are way cheaper. And then you go, okay, well, why would anyone, why would the private sector invest in this if it's more expensive? You go, well, that's the problem. That's where we're stuck. We're stuck at the science, you know, experiment levels where it's possible, but not economically viable. There's also the not the space mining kind of fits in that same category as well. Yeah, there's also the not in my backyard thing with with nuclear yeah, as well. <laughs> NIMBYs are definitely part of that story as well. But it is, you know, even if you could just run over the NIMBYs, it's not economically viable in certain places. Obviously, certain countries have different parameters for their economics. But yeah, it's a it's a really odd uh, conundrum that effectively we could, as a species, can do these amazing things until the accountant goes, no, that's not an economic viable you know that we can't mass produce that right. uh, and a lot of this is going to be the problem that you know the reusable rockets for instance or rockets that can go out that far and do it and come back you know are possibly you know, could be built there's blueprints or we have the ideas we know how to do it but if you build one that's horrifyingly expensive right. if you build ten thousand of them actually the, the price comes down because you have a supply chain you have people who do this you get you know it starts to build up an actual economy about it but we're not have any use for ten thousand of these things at the moment so effectively, we have to keep, you know, wait to a point where it becomes mass producible. The private industry gets involved and much more than they are for the, the price thing dramatically drops. You know, the same way that a laser printer was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, absolutely just out of the, you know, out of the realm for a home or a person to have, but then it became a mass produced product because we bought enough of them. We got to a company to scale and it became quite a cheap product. Sure. We need to get to that space and we're still a fair way off that. Same, same as everything else. I mean, you know, I, Space tourism right now is for the rich. A hundred years ago, the, uh, so was ocean travel. You know, on the Titanic. Now, you know, uh, you can, you know, pretty much anyone can afford a, a, a cruise if you want to. Um, so, yeah, economies of scale. I mean, that, that's the way it always is. I was told that there's a like an unlimited supply of helium three on the moon, or or so they think, and the helium three could be used to create energy forever, except nobody knows how to make energy out of helium-3 yet. Um, yet. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, what they're referring to is, is part of nuclear fusion. Uh, and effectively, because helium-3 is useful, you can effectively use part of it. Like you, you can use it to make a tritium and then split it, and that causes a whole bunch of different problems with neutrons. You know, obviously, I'm not a nuclear physicist. I know the very basics of it, and mostly because I know the economics of it. Right. That you have to end up, it's doable, but you have to get a fusion reactor up there. That's horrifying expensive. Also burns, you know, particularly if you can run it safely, beryllium and a few other minerals, which we don't mine in large quantities either. So you have to get the reactor up there and you have to build it and you have to get the, the blanket around it to keep it safe from contaminating all, all your, the rest of your moon base uh, before you can get the helium to power it. So again, if we can get it going, yes, we can power it infinitely from what we can find on the moon. That's great. That's the concept anyway. But we need to keep sending beryllium up there. We need to keep, you know, this thing and hope to God it doesn't break down because all the parts are horrifyingly heavy as well. Right. You know, these things are the size of warehouses. And we're talking the problems of, of sending satellites which weigh, you know, three or four kilos. They're not, so a lot of these satellites, particularly for, you know, just connectivity or, or small surveillance satellites, aren't that big. And yet we're trying, you know, now the discussion is going to, okay, can we put an entire fusion reactor on the moon? Which again, the whole other problem because the heavier you are, the heavier you are, the harder it's going to 
that we land that safely and then also set it up and work with it and build it inside the moon. Because again, yeah, it's lighter to carry around, but you still got to have people to carry it and put it into place. And you know, we just won't have a forklift sitting on the moon very easily. So there's a whole bunch of problems that if we could solve, you know, it's what you solve that problem, you solve 10 problems after that, but then you now have new problems to solve. Right. But it's they're solving those initial ones, like how do you power things to, before you can start to think, how do you get mining? What I'm hearing, though, is at least for the topic of this show, since we haven't solved those economic problems, there's actually less likely going to be competition for it right now, which is one of the causes of war is, is scrambling for new resources. I mean, that, that's that's a big one. So we're back to, you know, uh, a terrestrial war being fought in part or started in the stars. So uh, who has the ability i mean listen there was a james bond movie back around 1980 moonraker is basically a redo of thunderbolt yeah. i i mean i doubt that there's I, I doubt that even the mighty evil and noble country at the same time of jeff zikistan could launch a a, a space uh base and not for lack of trying and i know that you know there's lots of people think there's already you know there's a been a nazi base on there for you know, 75 years and yeah, me too. I've seen a couple of them actually, um, you know, or maybe other bases, but again, sticking to the reality of it, like who has the ability to put something up there in the air that could threaten, you know, the satellites at, at whichever orbits exist these days, because they're all in orbit, the, you know, otherwise they're not a satellite. They're, they're, you know, they're like Voyager, they're a probe. So to, to, you know, for the, which countries have the ability to effectively wreck low Earth orbit? It's terrifyingly most because effectively most of your really good you know uh, area denial missiles will get pretty near that area. And again, if you just want to you know sh- shove it on a jet, go as high as you can with the jet, and then shoot it off and, and just get it to blow up and cause chaos up there, that's not actually out of the realm of a, a country like North Korea. That's mm. possible, uh, and that's a terrifying sort of because. The satellites and internet go down for North Korea. Nothing changes for North Korea. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, again, I don't think anything of that rope is China would you know, absolutely knock on and send a pretty nasty email to North Koreans if they were to, to do that. Uh, again, knocking out satellites up there, unless you can just knock out your opponents. So, for instance, the Russians will use GPS system, not, not the US one. Maybe some of them might do, but you know, a lot of them, they have their own Glasnost system. Uh, the Europeans have their own you know, own version of GPS they want to try and use. Uh, the Americans have GPS, you know, those are, oh, what if I knock out my opponent's GPS version of that anyway? I would keep my version. And that's, you know, maybe, but if you're just doing the, let's just explode things up there and cause a bunch of chaos, you can't just target your own satellites. The right. thing's going to go everywhere. You're going to take everyone out. So we're not, you know, the terrifying thing is that there's a lot of other countries that have the capability to cause that chaos uh, because it is, the price of rockets has gone down and the amount of things we can put in the air has gone up. But I don't think anyone's looking to do that. It hurts everybody dramatically for not really that much gain. Uh, particularly if you're even a middle power who's being invaded, let's say India and Pakistan are going to war with each other. Uh, they're not going to gain much from just blowing up everything GPS-wise. So right. yeah, it's one of those, again, possible, but no one really has an incentive to do so. And like, I mean, I guess also no one really has a much, much incentive to build defensive measures. One, because there's an enormous amount of space out there. That's why it's called space. Uh, the other is it's expensive against the low risk. And the other is, I mean, I mean you know, I think a lot of countries are now gearing up for basically World War II styled land wars because of what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. and China are probably building more on naval and, and technical uh, things because of, you know, the, the Pacific. And uh, I, I, the Europeans, to the extent that they're doing anything, I assume that they are also working on defenses and, you know, looking east again. Um, and those are the, you know, the, those are probably the biggest militaries. I mean, the Saudis have all the money that they would need, but I, I don't know that they have the ability or desire to, you know, launch that kind of war. So every, every military has a, a, a budget. Then all the armed forces will compete, you know, whether it be the Navy, the Army, what's, uh, the Air Force, they're all going to compete for that same pie of money. And yeah, you could 
put all your money into making a, a you know, rickety satellite that can, you know, see the back of someone's head or read someone's phone from space. Great work. But then you just cost yourself, you know, probably all of the ammunition shells that you could have built for that same price. And right. again, a lot of countries don't have an incentive to go build this huge satellite surveillance network because A, they can just piggyback off all the Americans have if they're in that sphere, or they can piggyback off all the Chinese have if the Chinese being reliable. Uh, but also just what do they really get? And from if Pakistan or let's say India can see, you know, the Pakistan's troops moving, yeah, it's great. But what does Bhutan need to see back India's troops moving? By the time India is going to invade them anyway, the, the war's done. They're not going to gain anything from getting, you know, uh, news 14 minutes earlier that the Indians are coming. Yeah, not that it's going to happen, but just as a, like a case example. Uh, so they'll, yeah, they'll start throat a, chanting earlier. Hmm. You know, if, the, if the, all the U.S. chiefs were to go to the presidency. You know what? Screw tanks and UAVs and, and F-35s. We're going to give up on all our military programs. We're just going to do space stuff. <laughs> we could do some amazing, amazing things, but we'd also have to give up everything else the U.S. does. Right. So be, it's, it's pretty unlikely at this point. Right. There'd be no more carriers. All those those 40% of subs that aren't being repaired right now or get, are being refitted are, are going to stay that way, and the other 60% will slowly go to disrepair. And, that, and those are more realistic threats for now. Um it, you know, I, the thing that I think scared me the most, because you're right, if, if you blow up a, a satellite or, or, you know, just even, you know, knock it off its course in the orbit, it's, it, it's going to collide into, you know, it's a domino effect. But if you just nudge it down or nudge it up, you know, so it burns back into the earth, or maybe better yet, it goes out into the reaches of space. I mean, maybe in 30, you know, 32,000 years, it'll, you know, get to Andromeda or something and they'll be mad at us. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that, that seems to be something that you could do easily enough, but you'd have to have some sort of shuttle program. I mean, or you have to be building things that will, are remote control, almost like space drones with remote control, you know, single function to get up there. And I don't, I don't know, I guess nudge a satellite out of the way. And then if you want to cover up the, Evidence, you just have it follow it and keep on going because, uh, you know, the, I, I don't think the, there's any Wawa's or gas stations or ATMs up there with cameras. Well, again, in Russia, the, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans have that capability already. You know, we've seen the Russians, you know, can move their satellites about. They can, you know, effectively, they have the capabilities to A, try and intercept messages between ground and satellites. Um, they've been doing that for a while, the Chinese can too. Uh, but the Russians also have the capability to throw satellites off orbit or throw them back down toward Earth. That's great, but again, what's the real use out of it? I threw one or two satellites, but then the US have the same capability. They just throw a few Russian satellites down. We, we really just get to the point where we're just throwing each other's satellites down to the ground. Yeah. Because again, it doesn't really, it's a very expensive operation that very quickly runs everyone's budgets down, and no one really gains that much from it. If you're, you know, there's a couple of ones that you would really worry about. So, you know, there's always been talk of the, kinetic weapons being used up there because effectively if you can drop a very heavy you know, rod we're going to use by the time it builds up enough kinetic energy it hits the ground with a, you know, effectively a force behind like you know cause a Hiroshima sized crater uh, there's also been a lot of talk of MIRVs being used up there now it's not completely sure the Russians have stuff up there it's I wouldn't be because we're recording this I wouldn't be confident to say anything but I think we could all have a pretty good assumption what they have up there and that's terrifying for everyone because right. right now there's been always that that kind of worry of okay if the Russians launch all their, their nuclear weapons you know, let's say Doomsday comes they have you know a 90 minute run between uh, 90 it's 47 one of the two it's very early uh, comes out of the tubes in, in central Russia or flying towards the White House and you kind of have 90 minutes to get your, get your stuff together and get in the bunker or 45 or whatever it is but if you're launching from space, you've got, you know, 90 seconds. At that point, no one's, by the time NORAD sees the, the blinking light, doesn't matter. The president's not going to get the marker in time. Right. And that's uh, not going to matter to you or me. That, 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 <laughs> no, not to you. <laughs> but it will absolutely, you know, it will throw a lot of the playbooks out because we have all these sort of pr procedures that we wrote during the Cold War of, okay, if the if nukes start flying, the president goes in and we can still run and have command and control and we can still kind of run the country from this bunker beneath the White House. But if the president gets hit in the first 30 seconds, then like it kind of throws everything up and we go to, we're down 
and the, the change we have probably the Secretary of Agriculture all of a sudden becomes the President. Um, again, these are way off scenarios from what we're probably uh, started the conversation with, but it's it's a really interesting you know, addition to this that there are offensive weapons up there. Who, who else has offensive weapons up there? I mean, it can't just be Russia. There's a debate if the Chinese do. I would, I would be surprised if they haven't at least got the capabilities or they haven't thought about it. I, I would again, be surprised. What about the U.S.? Yeah. We know the U.S. has some offensive weapons up there. But so, so again, it's, if they're kinetically nuclear, that's, that's the debate you have up there. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's still mutual assured destruction, which... Uh, that's the big thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems to work. Well enough, I, I suppose, in, until it doesn't. But but uh, anyway, no but. Uh, it's, it's 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 saved us this far, and I think yeah. you know as as much as I, you know, it mutually assured destruction. If I was to explain it to an alien, it would make no sense at all. It has both sides don't want to destroy each other. Like they don't, no one wants Russia to become craters, and no one wants the United States to become craters. And it makes the United States make that consideration of you know. I'm very sure the United States probably would have gone, you know, taken the rest of Germany if they didn't think that it would also cost them most of the United States major cities. The same with Cuba. Um, so it has probably prevented quite a lot of wars from, from kicking off and going down that road. And I, it's at least comforting to say, you know, that both communicating with each other and they do actually make each other aware and they do lead to de-escalation. So classic example, one of the first people that the Biden administration called about when Biden was going to go visit Kiev, were the Russians pretty much to say, hey, look, Biden's going to go to this, this stop in Kiev. I know you're going to hate it, but Biden's going to do it. Do not bomb Kiev that day right. because we're going to be in Kiev, and I don't think you want to start World War Three. The right. Russians, yeah, they didn't do any airstrikes or any strikes, but pretty much the two days either side. They don't want to start World War Three over this. Yeah, no, that, that, which is yeah. which is nice so, to... In communication. Yeah, well, that... And that's good to see, and then it's a heck of a way to test it. But uh, it, 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 I mean, but it's good. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, let's move on to my favorite country, Jezikistan, but Jezikistan Incorporated. Uh, and we are private actors. You know, maybe their name might resemble my Twitter handle backwards, which forwards is actually a real name. And, you know, there are some, you know, there are some private actors who, who have the ability to put things in space. And also one in particular that, that they might have the incentive to destroy communication satellites because they've put up 60,000 of them. And now all of a sudden you have a monopoly on information around the world. And, you know, I, I was having an argument argument with a friend of mine, I'll call it a discussion argument, whatever, and we just dis- agreed to stop talking about it. But whether or not what Elon Musk did with the satellites Starlink over Ukraine was actually because he wanted peace or because he was pro-Russian, and I don't really want to have that debate with anyone else either. You know, I tried to make the say, well, if you blockade one harbor and not the other side's harbor and you say it's for peace, that's that's taking sides. That's not for peace. You have to blockade everyone. Uh, anyway, that, that's neither here nor there because, uh, you know, I don't really. But if somebody had an incentive in getting rid of all the communication satellites, private actor, um, and then they say, ah, but I can replace it. And now I or I've already replaced it. I got 60,000 satellites up there. All you got to do is sign on to these terms and conditions here. And now you you have now you now control the world's information. So there's your Bond villain incentive. Uh, you don't even need Jeff Zikistan for it. Uh, I guess Jeff Zikistan is just where he's relocated all his assets for, for safe harbor. Um, so, okay, so we do need Jeff Zikistan. Um, so uh, for the safe harbor evil country. So uh, uh, is there anyone that's doing defensive measures against something like that? Or is just like, no, there is no Jeff Zikistan. Everything is in the United States or in another country that's going to police their businesses enough. Basically, the hooks theory with commerce that nobody's going to go rogue in space because most of their assets, people, and investments are here on here on terra firma. Yeah, and that's that's probably closer to what reality is now. The you know to build a satellite that has you know, satellite fighting capabilities is a very expensive you know, operation to do. You know, I don't see. You know, Elon Musk having the, the, the capital to want to go do that, you know, because he's not going to gain very much by doing it. There are thousands of satellites out there that are doing similar jobs. 
ops, you know, whether it be just carrying new stations or whether it be, you know, just backing up telephones, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And the moment he throws one down, maybe he calls it an accident. Two, three, he's going to, you know, have someone knock on his door and say, hey, what are you doing? Because uh, the US will very much not appreciate that. Now, legally, it's a real question mark. And that's, you know, we'll talk legal first, then we'll go back to sort of what will likely happen around. So Legal-wise, there isn't really a precedent for this because it gets, you know, if you're attacking private property or attacking state property, you know, where you have jurisdiction, you're going into international criminal law, are you going by the law of the sea, are you going by kind of the Antarctic Treaty, everything is really up for debate. And there are lots of lots of very dry lawyers who have debates in bars about this. Uh, and I've sat in a few of them. They are you know, amazing how weird they get down that road. <laughs> but, you know, to, you'd get three or four satellites in before someone would start, you know, seeing these things go down. You've got, uh, you, know, you know, let's call it X on the side of a satellite who's throwing stuff down. <laughs> They're going to know who's probably responsible. They're going to call it because we, we know what's up there. The wonderful bit about low Earth orbit is if you're, you know, you, if you're bigger than, let's say, uh, you know, the size of a fist, we, we, can, we know you're up there. You know, occasionally we get, satellites get through us and we don't realize they've been launched, but because things get launched by rockets as well, we kind of get to see them when they're taking off. We know when they leave Earth. We know that when they enter war, we can track them pretty well. And when you see, hey, okay, the you know, satellite 2218, blah, 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 didn't appear this morning, and now this one didn't appear this morning, you can start to, okay, everyone be concentrating on this area because obviously there's something weird up there. Um, yeah, so I, it would take throwing thousands of these things before he'd have a, a monopoly of, of communications. So that's one thing. In reality, yeah, the US would probably knock on his door and say, hey, knock it off, you know, or we will just use our satellites and throw yours into, into space. Right. Or we'll simply just sanction you or do whatever we do. And frankly, the US taxpayer is paying most of Elon's bills or SpaceX's bills anyway. That's true. Um, yeah. To cut that off, you know, that gets, you know, the US has a lot of nasty hammers they can use if it was to get down that road of, you know, hey, we can absorb part of your company, we can give all of your competitors, you know, effectively all of them, all your contracts, we can do a whole bunch of things uh, and really, really hurt SpaceX. So Elon has no incentive like the US government, uh, particularly while they're, they're paying Western bills and no incentive to go pay millions and millions and millions of dollars to probably throw one or two satellites out there that would cost his competitors a fraction to replace compared to what he'd have to get, you know, to have a satellite that moves and they would target the satellites and get them down as well. So, again, doable but not economically feasible, I think, is probably the theme of this entire conversation. Okay. So, uh, I'm allowed to say this because I'm Jewish, but uh, what about what about the Jewish space lasers? <laughs> well, we, we didn't cover that one. Um, okay. You know, we looked into it. We couldn't find any, any, anything on that one. But, yeah, okay. it's uh, well, yeah, what an interesting concept. <laughs> licensed by Yahweh. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so okay, so I guess I guess the point is is that we really shouldn't worry too much about it, and if if it gets to the point near term, and by near term, I don't know what what's near term next four decades. I'd say we like I'm not as worried about deliberate attacks. That's not my big. That's not what keeps me awake about space. It's an accident going wrong that keeps me up at this point at, at night about this. It's. Someone decides, you know, stupid down the chain of command, they're going to use an anti-satellite missile and doesn't account for the debris. Or simply that someone makes a calculation wrong and accidentally launches, you know, is trying for some uh, mission to go, you know, throwing a car out into space or whatever it is and misses and hits someone's debris. Uh, or there's a miscommunication on one of these satellites and they accidentally, you know, use a kinetic weapon, you know, by malfunction. That's, that's something that does worry. Uh, because again, it's not like a, a you know, a, you know a nuclear weapon where effectively it's got automatons and it's got lots of safety catches and it won't you know explode until it won't detonate the actual core of the, of the weapon until it meets all these parameters. If it's just a kinetic weapon, you've just dropped it and it, it will just make right or whatever the hell it hits. You know that's the stuff that worries me a little bit. That you know we haven't really legislated, we haven't regulated, we haven't done. You haven't figured out all the all the kinks of what happens with that. Uh, far more than, you know, people making deliberately bad decisions, I guess is the best way to put it. Is there any enhanced risk if there's actually a series of moon bases out there and somehow they can generate ships that take off from the moon and then hit the satellites and instead of coming back to Earth, they 
fly back to their moon base? I mean, is, it, it, could there be a star war out there and then it, it never gets into the Earth's orbit? It always, it always, it's always just outside. I mean, it would be a worry because someone's got technology that's way above anything else. Um, if, if someone has the technology to kind of go back and forth from the moon, you know, and operate like that, it means that they are way above what we're all playing with at the moment, which would be terrifying. And if we all figure out, you know, wake up one day and Belgium all of a sudden is just like, haha, I have this space program you didn't know about, and I've actually, you know, cracked the ability to take off and, and land and keep going and, and do all that kind of stuff without, you know, having to refuel a bunch of times, then yeah, that would be incredibly uh, destabilizing for geopolitics because they obviously have something that the rest of the world doesn't. No, no, I'm definitely worried about now, Belgium. All, all the chocolate and the... Yeah. <laughs> and, and all of the, you know, their they're, they're wit stouts that they're making out there. It's, it's a cover for yes. something. Um, it's actually rocket fuel, that's where it is. <laughs> exactly right. Okay, so we have to get a little bit into the UAP disclosure issue because... We're dealing with technology that we don't have, but, well, we've seen things that look like technology that we don't have. So if it's not extraterrestrial, um, which no one has said it is, and no one has said it's not, or some of it is, then it might be technology that we, whoever we is, some collective we here in, in, in the world, one of the 193 or so countries, does have. Um, and... Does that change things at all, or do the pictures of Tic Tacs and whatever that you've seen, you know, that the F-16s can barely keep up with or can't keep up with at all, the, does that give you any pause or give you any other thing to think about? Of course. Yeah, absolutely give me pause. But, yeah, we don't, we don't know enough to make definitive calls about any of this. That's the trouble it is. A lot of this is pilot testimony or... Is like camera, it's, you know, it could be something on a camera, and we just don't quite know enough about it to make full calls. Now, if you look at sort of some of the people who were like, oh, um, you know, alien ship in, in sort of the early 70s, but it actually turned out to be something like a, a B2 or a, uh, you know, a, a SR71, which right. again, absolutely mind boggling, you know, scientific push. It was way above the parameters of what people thought was possible at the time, but only. Way above is probably the exaggeration I'm talking here, that it's, it's from here to here. Right. Whereas, you know, having some crazy ship that can go to Mars and back in a couple of minutes, whatever it is, that's a jump from here to way up here. Um, so, you know, I, every time there's something that's just, you know, it's a lot quicker or let's say it can do, you know, like, hey, it can travel at Mark 32. Well, you know, the Russians have talked about their hyper, their new hypersonic being possibly capable of doing Mark 32. And that's debatable the whole level. Is it just a, a good bit of technology that's not publicly in the open source as of yet? That's possible. But there's also the possibility that this could be aliens and it could be whatever it is. We just don't know enough. And it's one of those, you know, I've always been reading about this and listening to it. And I, I just don't feel confident saying one way or the other one. Okay. So, one of those, you know, if I'm wrong, yeah, I'm wrong <laughs> pretty much whatever I say. Have you been following the, the different governments, UAP disclosures and hearings and things like that? Yeah, I've been following it. A lot of, you know, a lot of it is a lot more mundane than you think it is. You know, it's the classic example with balloons that, you know, people, you know, uh, sort of freaking out over these balloons saying that it seemed like it appeared one day and all of a sudden a thousand bullets of balloons across, across the United States and everyone panicked. What the... Reality actually is that those balloons that the Chinese send over are actually fairly regular. They've been happening for years. No one's really cared about it because I mean they, they get what they're getting, but it's not the end of the world. It's something that the US can do with satellites. The Chinese just use balloons because they're much cheaper. Right. Um, but because we were freaked out, they went shut it down. Everyone started looking into it, and yeah, you're going to find them because people are actually looking for them. Uh, and then they lowered the threshold of what counts. You know, aren't they? they're looking for because effectively, it's if it's above this size then we'll actually care about it below this size we don't when you lower that threshold you start picking up lots and lots of little things you didn't pick up before right uh, and a lot of what we're classifying is all these things that have come in are fairly normal things because we've lowered thresholds uh, for what we want to pick up in the atmosphere and what we want to register and what we want to call and, and talk about that spot that's one factor of this conversation from what they've disclosed this seems like a lot of what they're talking about like unidentified objects are likely you know surveillance equipment or civilian equipment 
just a lot of ways, you know, it, it, a lot of it will be there. But it's the 2% that we don't know what it is that's a really interesting part. And I, that's where that conversation is probably more where people are thinking about where it could be aliens, it could be whatever. And it's just something that we don't know enough. You know, I'm not staring classified documents here on that one. So right. I don't know enough to, to define it one way or the other. But it is very interesting conversation. You were not a Mar-a-Lago. You were not able to see those documents. <laughs> I mean, They're all in the bathroom just sitting there. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, one, one thing about Donald Trump is that if he actually found out evidence of, of UFOs or aliens, I, I don't think he could have kept it to himself. So uh, if he didn't know, it, 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 at least it's not the U.S. that's keeping anything at Area 51. But, you, I mean, you talk to journalists, you talk to people at think tanks, people in the intelligence community, in the defense community, in various state departments and diplomats and, you know, and, and all sorts of things. Is is this a conversation that any of them are having other than for ha-has? There are people who are having this conversation, but I think the the week that all this came out was the week that Space Force was asking for a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And they wanted a very much high, high budget. And this put a lot of conversation onto space and what's capable in space and took a lot of Midwest senators, I'm not going to call names, but made a lot of, you know, kind of people who were on that budgetary committee went, ooh, space is important and help them get their budget you know, if they were going to roll it out, it was going to be the budget week to do it. You know, it's, I, I'm, a, I'm usually a bit more cynical than the average person. I would imagine that probably had a big factor on why that came out when it did. Uh, is it ground shattering? Really? It's, you know, we, it's, if they're saying there's a good possibility that there are aliens out there, I mean, we all, you know, just statistically, anyone kind of probably assumed there was anyway. It well, doesn't can, really affect our day to day. Not yet. But can they make rock of fuel? Can they make rocket fuel out of uh, corn and soybeans? <laughs> Look, if anyone's going to figure it out, it's the U.S. going to figure out how to do that. Yeah, that everything else out of corn. Um, I, I, yeah, I, was, I was reading or listening to recently, out of the corn that the U.S. makes, only about 2% of it actually ends up as corn. Right. 5% ends up as food, and the rest of it ends up as like plastics and fuels and ethanols and all sorts of weird stuff. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. That's a, another tangent, but yeah, just maybe few. Yeah, and some of it is the act if the farmers actually get sold, uh, paid not to sell it, not you know, just to. I don't know what they do with it, destroy it. I'm not sure. I who knows. Um, all right, so I think we've covered war in space. There's a lot of there's there's potential for accidents, uh, but doing something on purpose would probably be disastrous, and we're not really too worried about near term. Uh, laser battles in space anytime soon. And if we are invaded by aliens, there's probably nothing we can do about it anyway. Um, probably, yeah. <laughs> so I, was there anything that I should have asked you about or some, something that you stumbled upon that, that you didn't have an opportunity to tell me that's on the subject? I think the, the, the big one is about surveillance improvements. And this is where space is absolutely fascinating with what the U.S. is able to do at the moment. So, you know, Effectively, there's a, a measurement that you talk about in space where it's kind of how much you can you know, get out of a, out of what, a pixel, effectively. Uh, and, you know, Google Earth is going to have something like 50. That's, that's the kind of number they're shooting at. 28 is a really good, like, you can see tanks and make out the individual kind of what tank it is on the ground. Uh, the declassified world is suggesting the U.S. have got, you know, somewhere around the sort of uh, you know, 15-ish. But there's a lot of sort of stuff coming out now that they've got really down to some some crazy levels that they can now read effectively. If someone's holding their phone like this, they could probably read the message on the phone from space, wow. which is an absolutely mind-boggling amount of surveillance. And again, the US will have very little amount of these because they're going to be so ridiculously expensive. Uh, but it just shows you how the improvements in satellite and surveillance capabilities. And the other one the US is really proud of is effectively that they have satellites now that can launch, uh, you know, uh, effectively beams and, and all sorts of stuff to measure and map out and form a 3D map of a bunker, which is an absolutely, you know, when we had uh, the piece that we did on this in satellites, surveillance, and one of our guests who's ex-NORAD and ex-NASA and everyone took us through how to do it and effectively showed that they can shoot it at, let's say, a, a, a you know, bunker of North Koreans and map out how many people are in that bunker, what the layout of it looks like, and kind of make a 3D model of it, and then bring it back, you know, send that back to Washington, which is crazy that we can now do that with the satellite. Um, you know, we are at the point where we're able to see that someone's bald spot from space uh, quite comfortably. Um, That's embarrassing. 
yeah, it's it's you know that's a if this is where we are, where do we go from here? Is the next question of that, and that's pretty impressive um, that we we have that capability. So it's a it shocked me how what is actually possibly on the table with this. What about uh, so I, I did not consider I did, I did not consider that the U.S. government could possibly, if they wanted to, you know, uh, see me in my pajamas when I'm hanging out my laundry. <laughs> okay, well that's interesting. What about um? like sound weapons or electric magnetic pulses. I mean, you know, every movie we see EMPs and that's sort of the indefensible thing of, for everything, though I don't see a lot of them being deployed, you know, in, in Eurasia right now. Um, is, is that a thing or is that a thing of science fiction? From, again, I haven't done too much work on EMPs in particular weapons. From what I remember, and I'm getting up very early in the morning, I'm sort of scratching the back of my head on this one. So to actually make an EMP charge go off and do the sort of distance that you really want, mm-hmm. you're effectively going to detonate what's close to a nuclear weapon anyway. Gotcha. And at that point, you might as well just go for nuclear weapons. Ah, all um, right. They are really, really, you know, they're detrimental, they're problematic. And again, uh, what are you trying to do? Are you just trying to block them and semiconductors and everything? That's one thing. You know, it's a, it's a, to do it would be more expensive than just to nuke. Well, if you want to rob three casinos at the same time in Las Vegas, that's, that, different. You know, that's, that's how you do it. I mean. <laughs> that would be, um, but yeah, and that's the other one is you could probably do, you know, like the Ocean's Eleven scenario that you take out one building worth of it, and it's very expensive. Remember, the the piece of equipment they steal in the movie is a scientific experiment, which again, from Caltech economics, yeah. they could possibly do it, and of course it worked. It worked. That's great. Right. But do you really want to try and like, try and spend all this money to take out? the lights in one Russian building. Right. And when you go to your Air Force commander and put that on the table and say, hey, uh, I'm going to need you know, X billion dollars so I can take out the power of one Russian building, they're going to go, A, we can nuke it, B, we can bomb it, and C, we know where the power station is down the road, let's just blow that up. And you go, oh, yeah, why didn't I think of that? Or four, um, we can wait a little while, it'll probably break down on its own. <laughs> very true and again I feel like I'm going to get tatted over my forehead it's like yeah but economics <laughs> you know what that, that's okay we we all need a, a catchphrase we all need a trademark something that makes us us that's it yeah. the best the most apt description I've ever heard of myself I think it was some journalist called me yeah, I, you know, my personality is that of a depressed Excel spreadsheet and I was like that is the best personality <laughs> the best description I've ever heard of myself and I will wear that with a badge of honor Oh, well, that's fine, but it's 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 basically follow the money. I mean, it's it's and there's a reason that's a cliche, um, because it it usually will take you to where you want to go because that tends to be the motivation most of the time. All right, as always, you've been very generous with your time and knowledge. I th- we're you're hit the one hour mark, so this is your time to sell yourself. I wanted to let everyone know I'm a Patreon of a show, so you should be too. Um, but yeah, Mike, tell them where they can find you and support you, et cetera, et cetera. So you can check out the red line most of your major podcast platforms uh, as YouTube as well. Uh, we do big de- uh, geopolitical deep dives, whether it be satellite surveillance or the economics of nuclear power or, you know, the Libyan civil war or, uh, you know, uh, one just, we just did recently, or democracy in Central Asia. You know, we do lots of big crash courses uh, with the aim being that up to 90 minutes with experts from the White House and the CIA and uh, academia and defense guys will take you through and effectively give you a big crash course on one big subject that you should feel that you have a pretty good understanding of what's going on in that situation by the time you leave that place. Uh, that's on the Magic Podcast platform as well as on YouTube and all the other good stuff. But, you up to so, 30 million yeah. downloads yet? Uh, yeah, I think we're, no, we're just before, I think we're 29 point something. So we're close. We're uh, closing in on it, but I will be pretty happy once we hit that number. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to beat you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Again, I, you more than deserve it. It's a great show and uh, always happy to come on and, uh, and chat to you. Thank you so much. And when I think of something else that's wacky, you know, I'll reach out to you and, I, and I'm happy to know that you'll probably say yes. So everyone, Mike Hilliard, the Redline Podcast, subscribe to the show, tell other people it's great. And if you have a few bucks to spare, become a Patreon as well, because that actually is how he pays him and his team. This is, this is actually a self-funded thing. And and they're doing it. Um, all right. Thanks so much for being on the garden. I think this is going to be a garden views. Uh, while we got a little about outrageous, I think we are mostly stuck to real world scenarios. So we'll keep this one in garden views as opposed to garden of doom. Um, all right. Thanks again for being on the show. And uh, as always, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure.
Thank you so much, Mr. Upper. I gotta admit, I'm a huge fan. I've been following your work for a long time. You know, Death Star, Order 66, that was awesome. God, leave us. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Uh, let me just get like a quick pick or something. Like I can get my phone out. Right <laughs>